You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Thank you, team, for, for leading us. Uh, my name's Keith. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and, and welcome to you if you're new or visiting. Uh, we're just thankful you're here. And, and, and we sing about the goodness of God because God has done something amazing. <laughs> he gave you life. And in the midst of the life that, that God has given us, along the way, we, 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 we've done things that kind of mar the life, that, 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 that taint the life, that, that break the life we've been entrusted with. But Jesus has done something on the cross where he has taken those, those things, our brokenness, our, our sin, our shame, and, and through the cross, he suffered under their weight in order to, to forgive us. <laughs> And reconcile us to the one who gives life. And here's the thing. You are loved beyond measure by the God who made you. And maybe you walked in this morning and, and you felt a, a weight of shame or, 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 or a weight of failure. That's not how God sees you. He sent Jesus because he loves you. And he wants to bring us into the fullness of life you know, it's interesting that, that wherever Jesus went, crowds followed him. It's, crowds followed him. It's because when we see Jesus for who he really is, we can't help but lean in because he loves people. Jesus is worth it. He is worthy of our praise, and he is worth following. And we're just delighted that, that you're here this morning as we consider Jesus. It's all about him. I have a couple announcements. I haven't even started preaching yet, but uh, uh, I got a couple announcements. Uh, the first uh, is uh, is about uh, Ignite, which is a prayer uh, evening that is happening this week on Saturday, April the twenty eighth, where churches from a, sorry Friday, thank you, April the twenty eighth uh, at seven p.m. This is a, a prayer gathering where everyone, where churches, not everyone, but maybe everyone will be there. Churches across Kelowna are gathering together to pray for spiritual renewal and unity amongst the body of Christ. And so I want to invite you to be there uh, on this evening. It's at Trinity Church down the street. Uh, and, uh, and our leadership has been praying for this event for a number of months now. And we trust that, that God wants, uh, wants to do something in our city, not simply in our church, but in our city. And one of the things that we can do is we can unite with other churches who are following Jesus together, and we can pray that the Spirit of God would fall afresh on us, and he'd bring us to life. And so that's what uh, Ignite is about. I want to invite you to that. also want to let you know uh, a little bit of a, a sad uh, news uh, about Bob McKenzie, who many of you know and love and have been praying for. Uh, Bob passed away on Friday afternoon. Uh, and so we can be praying for, for Judy and the family uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, everyone kind of uh, who's part of the family. And I'll have uh, some details about a memorial service. Uh, likely it will be in May, along with Myrtles, uh, for those of you who know the family. So more details to follow. Okay, so we've been working through uh, the parables that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel. Uh, and as I've, I've been working through these the parables that Jesus tells, some of them are, are kind of tough to swallow, aren't they? 
They're not like these bedtime fairy tale stories. They're real and raw, and they challenge us. And sometimes they feel scandalous, and so we come to the next parable, and this one, it, it, it pretty much punches us right in the face, all right, at the very beginning. Jesus says something wild, something uh, that, that, that leaves us scratching our heads, and then he goes on and tells two parables. And so let's jump right in, and you can see what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Luke 14, 25 to 35, if you're unfamiliar with, with a Bible, you can kind of, it's close to the back, uh, and so you can flip through and find that or, or find it on your device. Luke 14, starting in verse 25, hear the word of the Lord. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with the 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe you have the words to life. So help us hear the words you speak and bring us to life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What on earth is going on with this passage? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to read, but let me do it again. Verse 26. If anyone, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. <laughs> it doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> It sounds like we're reading something that shouldn't quite be there. I want to take this moment to, to welcome my parents who are here visiting uh, from the Lower Mainland. Uh, and a word to you, I did not choose this passage for this weekend. Uh, it was in the schedule, and that's kind of how we roll. We kind of want to hear all that Jesus says. And so... 
Is Jesus really saying that in order to follow him, we must hate our family? I mean, we know a lot of the other things that Jesus has said about love. My command is this, Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you, John 15, 12. Love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 39. Love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. All right, this is the Jesus that we're familiar with. It's the same Jesus who, on the night that he was betrayed, he took off his outer garments, he wrapped a, 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 a cloak around his waist, he kneeled on the ground, and he washed his disciples' feet, and he said, a new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus says, love one another, your neighbor, your enemies, and this is what it looks like to be a disciple. And so we have to ask the question, what gives here? (laughs) Jesus can't really be saying in one breath that disciples are to love above all else, and then in the next saying that we're to hate the people that we're supposed to love the most. (laughs) So what gives? Can he really be saying what we hear him saying? And well, the short answer is no. Of course not. And I want to help you hear what he is saying because Jesus is saying something specific, something that we need to submit ourselves to. And I want to help you hear it. But before I do, I want to say that the sad reality is that this passage of Scripture It's produced this this kind of thinking, a toxic thinking, that that we can in some way neglect our family if it's for the sake of serving Jesus. And maybe some of you have grown up in a home where where this is the case, that that maybe your your childhood experience was one where where you felt like your parents really cared about being part of a a church community and and following Jesus, but, but you didn't necessarily feel like they cared for you. I was chatting about uh, this passage. I I think I was more commiserating, telling the staff, I need to preach this passage. Please help me. (laughs) And Pastor Brendan, he he told me a story about one of my heroes of the faith who's who's written many books on being a disciple. His name is Aidan Tozer, or A.W. Tozer. Uh, First name is Aidan. He's written all these things about being a disciple. And, and well, after Aidan died, his wife remarried another man named Leonard. And she was once asked about her new marriage, and this is what she said. She said, well, Aidan loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard loved me. Ouch. In some Christian circles, there's this subtle idea that that serving Jesus at the expense of our families is justified. Not just justified, but, but honorable even. But that's certainly not what Jesus is saying here. It's not what he's trying to communicate. And so we need to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus saying? Well, we need to know that Jesus here is speaking into a specific culture. And we can't 
fully hear what he's saying until we understand his cultural context. And there are two things that we need to get straight, that we need to understand. First, in Jesus' day, your identity, who you were, the most important thing about you, was given to you at your birth. Jesus was a Jew, as were the people in the crowd that day. And, and for all of them, their religious and their ethnic identity as Jews, it came from their parents. It was handed down to them. And they were expected to hand it down to their children after them. Your identity was handed down to you through your, your family heritage. That's the way it worked. And it still does in lots of parts of the world today. The family of origin determined your religion. And in Jesus' day, this was the most important part of a person's identity, of who they were. That's the first thing. The second thing about Jesus' cultural context was that if that you were, were honor-bound to your family heritage with absolute loyalty. You had to be 100% loyal to your family heritage or else. Uh, yesterday, uh, we took uh, Luca, uh, we were celebrating his birthday, and we took uh, about 14 other uh, kind of preteens to watch Super Mario Brothers movie across the street. Uh, there's a whole adventure story in there, but we'll leave that for another time. In the movie, if you're familiar with Super Mario's brothers, there's this scene at the beginning where, where, where uh, Mario and Luigi, they're brothers, of course, and they're tight. Uh, and there's this, this guy named Spike who comes and picks on Luigi. And Mario basically turns to him and says, if you mess with my brother, you mess with me. Right? It's this, this, this family loyalty. It's this, uh, this sense uh, in which you're loyal to the family above all other things. Loyalty to family heritage in Jesus' day, it was a non-negotiable. And this is often the case in, in what sociologists call an honor-shame culture. Your ethnic or your religious identity, it's handed down to you by your parents, and then you are honor-bound to be loyal to that heritage, no matter what. But if you step out of line, if you're not 100% loyal to the family heritage, if you don't follow the family way, you are, are given the status of being in a position of shame in the family. Right? You're cut out or you're shunned in the hopes that one day you'll come to your senses and return to the family way again. This is simply how it worked. In fact, some of you here today, you grew up in, in, in an honor-shame household, and so you know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember years ago, I, I baptized a, a young adult friend of mine uh, who, uh, she was Thai-Canadian. She had roots in Thailand, uh, and she was born in Canada, and her mom was a Buddhist. Her dad was an atheist. But one day along the road, she found Jesus, and she got baptized. And when she got baptized that day, her parents refused to come to the service. Because following Jesus, it was viewed as this disloyalty to the family. And so she was put in the shame category. I heard a pastor named Jim Denison. Uh, Denson. He, he once told a story about a time he, he was serving in a small church in Malaysia one summer. 
And one Sunday, a teenage girl announced to the church her decision to follow Jesus, and she was baptized that day. And during the service, Jim noticed this worn-out suitcase, a worn-out piece of luggage leaning against the wall of the church. And so after the service, he asked the pastor, what's this piece of weird luggage doing sitting there in the middle of the service? And the pastor pointed to the girl, and her hair was still dripping wet from the baptism. And he said, her father told her that if she was ever baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So she brought her luggage. This is the context into which Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to people who grew up in a world where family and religious heritage were the primary markers of your identity. And you were not permitted to step outside of those boundaries ever. And so if a person wanted to follow Jesus, if they truly wanted to be his disciple, they would need to step outside of these so-called unbreakable boundaries. They would need to trade their loyalties. You see, Jesus doesn't come to establish another religion that is simply passed down one family to the next. That's not what Jesus came to do, to give us a, a religion of heritage. Rather, Jesus came to do what no religion could ever do, and that is transform individual human hearts and then lead us to lead, live heaven's life here upon the earth and into eternity. See, when Jesus spoke these words, he wasn't telling us to have these feelings of, of hatred towards our families. Of course he wasn't. Rather, Jesus was challenging these deep-rooted cultural expectations of family loyalties. Because these loyalties, they stood in the way of following him and participating in his redemptive mission in the world. And they still do. And so Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, you have to make a choice. Put your primary loyalty toward me and my ways because loyalty to your heritage will actually keep you from the abundant life that I have come to bring the world. See, in this text, Jesus is speaking all about our Christian identity as disciples. And maybe we, we don't think enough about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. We, we think a lot about what it means to be a Christian, right? We, we use that word Christian, but, but, but disciple has a bit of a different connotation. And, and, and Jesus is wanting to tell us something about our identity as disciples. And this is what verse 34 is all about. Look, at the very end, when Jesus talks about salt, this is about our identity. Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? This is an illustration about identity. What makes salt salt? Well, it's saltiness. And what makes a disciple of Jesus a disciple of Jesus? It's not their heritage. It's not their family, but it's choosing to place their loyalty in Jesus to follow him, and to follow him into his redemptive mission above all other things. 
Here's the definition of discipleship that I've chosen carefully. Disciples are people who follow Jesus into his redemptive mission above all else. Disciples are people who follow Jesus into his redemptive mission above all else. And when a person makes that kind of choice, it costs them something. It costs them a whole lot of things. For some, like this Malaysian girl who was baptized or, or my Thai-Canadian friend, it costs them their families. Sometimes it, it costs people their friends. We know many of our, our Muslim friends are facing this very reality. They feel the pull of Jesus, but, but know that there is a consequence for choosing Jesus. It costs us something. But not simply for, for these, for all of us. Following Jesus, it costs us something even more personal than family or friends, even more personal. It costs us our life. Yes, even your own life, right? Jesus says that in verse 26, even your own life. Being a disciple will cost us our loyalty to ourselves. <laughs> It'll cost us our own self-ambition and our desire to promote ourselves and our own, follow our own desires. It'll cost us living for our own priorities. See, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 27. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross was a symbol of shame and of death in the first century. Right? You remember, Jesus took our shame and our death upon himself on the cross. And what Jesus is saying is here, here is that when we choose to be his disciples, it means that we are choosing to die to our own ambitions and priorities so that we might take up his. We trade our, our self-focused loyalty for a Jesus and his kingdom-focused loyalty. It means trading in our, our desire to to do what we want, when we want, however we want, in order to do things the way God wants us to live. It costs us something. The call of discipleship is, is, is to die to ourselves and be raised to life in Christ. And not simply for our own benefit, for his redemptive plan in the world. Could you imagine a world full of people who are following the way of love that Jesus showed us? It'd be a beautiful world to live in. Could you imagine a world where, where we follow the way of dependence on God like Jesus showed us? It'd be a difficult world to live in, but a beautiful one nonetheless. Jesus wants us to know at the outset that when we make a decision to, 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 to trade our loyalty to ourself even for a loyalty to him, that kind of decision is going to cost us something. You see, Jesus' gospel, it isn't something that, that, that we add to our existing life to make it better. 
And this is sometimes how we treat Jesus' invitation into the gospel, right? Because most of us, we've got a pretty good thing going for ourselves. Yeah, we have problems, but we've got a pretty good thing going for ourselves. You know, maybe it's a family or, or, or a car, a job. We've got hobbies that we like. But then somewhere along the way, we realize something's missing or, or someone tells us something's missing, and, and that one thing that's missing is Jesus. And we think that, that what we can now do is we, we add Jesus to our existing life, and somehow it completes the picture. It, it makes the life that we were living all that much better. But that's not how Jesus works. Jesus doesn't get added to our existing life to make it better. That's not how the gospel works. Rather, Jesus takes all of those existing things, the family, the home, the car, the job, the hobbies, and then he radically reorders every single one of those pieces around himself and his redemptive priorities in the world. In other words, a disciple's primary allegiance is to Christ and his mission, and everything else in their life takes their place in reference to him. That's the gospel. Now mark this, church. Disciples shouldn't ask, what will following Jesus add to my life? But rather, what will following Jesus cost me? That seems to me what Jesus is saying here. It seems to me what Jesus says over and over again. And so let us have an ear to hear certain prosperity gospel uh, speakers who, who make it seem like Jesus just wants to make your life easier and more prosperous. That doesn't sound like Jesus to me, at least not in this passage. How are we doing so far? I told, this is, I, you know, I didn't want to come up here and say these things, but uh, no, I, I did. I did. We're in this together. And we say, Jesus, how do you make us into all that we, that you dream for us to be? The truth of the matter is, when, when Jesus becomes your primary loyalty, when, when your first allegiance is to him, there's this radical reorientation of how you live in the world. Consider, for example, Jesus' disciples who live in a small Amish community in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. It was on October the 2nd, 2006, when these Jesus followers experienced the most horrific tragedy imaginable. Maybe you remember it. It was about 10.30 in the morning, and a man named Charles Roberts entered the single-room schoolhouse of that community, and he killed five girls from the ages of 6 to 13 before turning the gun on himself. It's horrific. We can't imagine what those parents went through, what those families went through in the wake of that horrible day. In fact, there have been books written about that day and the days that follow, and there have been movies made about that day and the days that followed, and all of them focus on, on how these parents responded in the wake of the tragedy of their, their, their daughters being murdered. And the story goes a little bit like this. It starts at the killer's funeral, of all places, when a few of the parents showed up. These were fathers and mothers who, who had buried their daughters just days before, and they arrived at the graveside of the murderer. 
And they hugged the murderer's grieving widow. And they wept bitterly with her. And then these grieving parents embraced their murderer's three young children and wept with them. I can hardly imagine. And later, these disciples, they they went public saying that they had forgiven the killer and his family. Now, remember, forgiving doesn't mean condoning. It doesn't mean excusing or forgetting. Forgiving means releasing from a debt. These grieving parents who lost their world that day, they released this man's family from a debt they could never repay. And in time, these disciples, they they collected money to donate to the killer's widow and children because they were unable to pay their own bills because they had no father to provide for them. Could you imagine that? You see, when Jesus and his redemptive mission are your primary allegiance, the way you live in the world is radically reordered. You see, these Amish parents, they loved their kids. No one would would ever question that. They loved them beyond measure. Yet, somehow, they lived out precisely what Jesus is saying in the text. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. But these were disciples who loved their children. But their allegiance to Jesus and his mission radically reordered the way they lived. They lived from a different script. Their allegiance to Christ and his world restored directed their actions in the most horrific circumstance of their life. It led them to forgive and bless where most would repay and curse, right? You see, loyalty to family over all else would mean revenge. But loyalty to Jesus would see the kingdom of heaven come upon the earth. And Jesus says, unless you're willing to live that kind of life, You can't be my disciple. Well, it's a sobering thought. Why? Why can't we be Jesus' disciple if we're not willing to live into that kind of life? Well, it's because disciples become like the teacher. And it's the life that Jesus led, one of service, sacrifice in order to make us whole. You see, sometimes we think the word disciple is this description of our our Christian status, right? Like a disciple is someone who has simply asked Jesus into our heart, and that makes me a disciple, But, but I don't think that's it. You see, being a disciple, it's not this title that we hold. It's it's not a, a position that we have. Rather, it's a process that we walk. Because disciples are formed. The Bible tells us that that disciples are being formed into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's what we're being formed into, into his image and his likeness. 
And church, mark this, nothing is ever formed into something else without a bit of pressure being applied. You see, transformation isn't this magical process that just happens. Right? An athlete, for instance. An athlete doesn't become an athlete by inviting competition into their heart. They work out. They compete. They fail. Then they get up and they do it again. And an entrepreneur, they don't become an entrepreneur by asking business into their heart. They put structure to ideas. They take risks. They fail. And then they get up and do it again. And a parent, a parent doesn't really become a parent by asking a child into their heart. It's a much different process. We're not going to get into that right now. <laughs> but rather, the, what makes a parent a parent is they get puked on <laughs> and pooped on and they pull their hair out with teenagers and they fail and they apologize and they get up and do it all over again. And the point is, being formed into an athlete or an entrepreneur or a parent happens in this crucible of pressure. And the same is true about disciples. We're formed into Jesus' image and likeness, not from the comfort of a couch, but under the pressure of sacrifice. For instance, it's under the pressures of greed that disciples can be formed into Jesus' image of generosity. It's under the pressures of insults that disciples can be formed into Jesus' image of humility. It's under the pressures of lust that disciples can be formed into the image of Jesus' purity. It's under the pressures of, of enemies that disciples can be formed into the image of Jesus' love. That is, of course, if our loyalty is to Christ and his kingdom come and not our own interests or our own desires. And I find it funny that, that in the text, there's this, this huge crowd that was following Jesus. Like I said at the beginning, you, you don't really need to, to convince people. When they really see who Jesus is, you don't really need to convince people to follow him. He, he's worth it. People, people want to be part of what Jesus is about. But it's funny that, that the text tells us at the beginning that there's this huge crowd following Jesus. And sometimes we think that the church is at its best when the crowd is at its largest. But Jesus, he goes about thinning the crowd looking for disciples. And he doesn't want us to be ignorant of what it will cost to make him our life's priority. And this is where the two parables come in. The first is about a foolish builder who starts building a tower but can't finish because they didn't consider the cost. The second is about a wise king who negotiates peace with a more powerful king because they've considered the cost of life in going into battle. And the point is clear. The foolish don't count the cost, but the wise do. And Jesus says, it's only those who've counted the cost and surrendered everything to him who truly walk the path of discipleship. So church, 
There's no tidy bow to put on God's word to us this morning. No compelling story. No poetic words. Just an invitation to count the cost of following Christ. If you want to be his disciple, if you want to participate in his redemptive mission, it will cost you everything. Your allegiance, your loyalty, your life. And the choice is yours. Let's pray. Amen.